Hi, this is Anthony Esposito from the infamous Ace Freely Band. Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hi, this is Bruce Kewley. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey everyone, this is Dave Menachetti from Y&T. This is Dave Starr from Wildstar. What's up, this is Doc Cole from the band God Forbid. Alright, this is Jason from uh, Kings of Modesty. What's happening? This is Jeremy Goldberg from Age of Evil. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, what's up? This is Mercedes from Kitty. I'm Rasmus Gruberg from New Keepers of the Water Towers. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owen. Hey, this is Steven from I Wrestled a Bear Once. Hey, this is Tara. And this is Ivy. And we're half of Kitty. Hey, this is Wolf from the Chariot. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hi, this is Robert Flashman. And you're listening to Mars Attacks. Victor. Hey everybody, this is Bobby Rock coming at you live from LA and you are listening to Mars Attack. Welcome one and all to episode number eight of the Mars Attacks podcast. Today we will bring you an interview that I conducted with Bobby Rock, former drummer of Vinnie Vincent Invasion, Nelson Nitro, uh, Carnival of Souls, and a bunch of other things. Uh, this is actually the last interview that aired on the stream as part of the normal radio show. This was unfortunately where we determined to uh, revert the uh, stream over to just music, at least for the Mars Attack segment. And uh, things have been working out well, you know. I have to uh, thank all of you listeners for coming on board and listening to what I do via the podcast here. Uh, I also ask that you check out Mark Striegel Radio when you have a chance, especially during the Mars Attacks Radio Show, which airs uh, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, repeats again on Fridays, 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific. And uh, if you have uh, any confusion over the times or want to know the times... Uh, for your specific zone, just go to the website, marsattacksradio.com, and you'll find everything out right there, top right-hand corner. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, anyway, let's get into the interview with Bobby. Behind me, you'll hear Ashes to Ashes off of All Systems Go with Mark Slaughter on vocals. Uh, after the interview, what we'll do is we'll play something off of the first Invasion album. That way you guys can choose for yourself which of the two versions of the Invasion you prefer better. Obviously the only difference is the singer. One has Mark Slaughter and one has Robert Fleischman. Anyway, let's get into the song. Just to watch it. 
on the phone we have Bobby Rock, ex-drummer of Vinnie Vincent's Invasion, and uh, Nelson, Nitro, and a bunch of other projects. We're going to discuss uh, not only Vinnie Vincent's Invasion, but uh, some of these other projects that Bobby has worked on over the years, and bring you up to speed with what he's doing nowadays. So, uh, uh, welcome aboard, Bobby. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so first of all, you know, most people were introduced into your playing when you landed the job with uh, Vinnie Vincent's Invasion. Um, was this something that you had to audition for? Was it something that you were specifically handpicked for the project? How did this opportunity come about? Well, actually, I did have to audition, and the way it went down was at the time I was touring in another band throughout the south and midwest of, uh, of the U.S., of course. And there was another band on the circuit with this called Sweet Savage that had just been produced by Dana Strum. So I knew these guys from the circuit and uh, knew of their work with Dana and understood that Dana was working with Vinny Vincent and they were Vinny had just gotten signed and they were just putting a new band together. So... I heard the drum spot was open through them, and uh, Joey Jones, who's the singer of Sweet Savage, is the one who ultimately gave me Dana Strum's phone number. So I called and uh, left him a very, you know, now infamous voicemail, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pretty much talked my way into an audition. Of course, I found out later that that uh, he was actually out out having lunch with Vinny at the time that he went to the payphone to check his machine. He okay. came back and said, hey, guess what? He jokingly, our, our new drummer is this kid from Texas or something like that. And the, and the quote was, then he said, fuck him. That was, that was the quote <laughs> right out of the gate, you know, because they were, like, I guess I left a pretty brash message. So that was like my rousing introduction to the band. But they thought, but you know, Dana really pushed her. He said, hey, you know what? The kid, you know, who knows? Man? Let's, let's give him a chance. So I think ultimately they were going to get a big kick out of me driving all the way out to L.A. to audition, even if I didn't uh, get the gig, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, it was cool. Then I just, uh, the, the, uh, the audition process basically was the, the I thought I was going to go in and, and jam with the guys, but basically it was uh, Robert Fleischman, Vinny, and Dana all sitting on a couch in a uh, rehearsal space here in, in Hollywood where they were just bringing guys in throughout the day. You'd come in, set up, play for five or ten minutes. It was kind of a screening audition. And then from there, they would call you back the next day or two to, you know, jam or to take it to the next step or something. So my screening thing went very, very well and wound up being, you know, an hour plus long, and I was pretty much hired on the spot. So that's kind of like how it, how it all went down, you know. Cool. So there was no issues with at least you having to wait to hear any feedback from the band or everything. It was all said and done right after your audition. It, it really was. I mean, I think there were there was one or two other guys after me, uh, but it just the feeling was, you know, they, okay, basically let, give us a minute, let's get to these other two guys. But yeah, you're hired pretty much, you know. Okay, cool. I'm assuming that the Invasion album was the first thing you had ever worked on in a professional setting, or was there anything that you had done previous to that? That was the first major label thing. I mean, I, I'd been involved briefly with this band called Rare Earth, who was really big back in the 70s, and they were doing kind of a, a resurgence thing in the in the mid-80s at the time, and I had done some work with them, but I hadn't recorded with them, and all the recording I'd done was pretty much small-time kind of stuff. So this was my first major label recording. Okay. What was it like to actually go in there? Was it something that uh, you were really nervous about, or were you really confident going in? Uh, it was very scary, to be honest with you, because, you know, we ne here's what most people don't know. We never played together. We never, uh, uh, like, the songs were already written, and the way that they wanted to record it was sort of like, you know, that, that kind of new school, Def Leppard, Mutt Lang type approach where everybody records individually, and, you know, it, it was, so it was a more clinical approach back then, you know? Of course, not that it's so different nowadays, but... Right. <laughs> back then that was kind of like what was the way it was done so i never had a chance to sit in a room and jam with everybody and, and kind of get a get a, get comfortable as a player i was hired solely off the strength of my audition um and and that was it i, I got the gig i went back and, and waited for you know weeks back in in where i was living at the time in, in houston 
um, and before I had a chance to come out and play. So, and then I had I sat through them recording rhythm guitar tracks and bass first before we even got to drums. Okay. So to me, there's like this big buildup. I had to show up and deliver the goods and. You know, the way we recorded the drums also, we had uh, we recorded at a studio in Hollywood that was kind of on the, on a second floor, and uh, Dana had arranged to, as co-producer, had arranged to rent out this gutted theater underneath the studio. So it was dark and dingy and drafty, and we set the drums up down there, and, and, and there was like, I was really isolated from everybody else. They had, a, they had a video camera on me so they could kind of direct me, like, hey, you know, hit that other symbol over there or whatever. But okay. I couldn't see them. I couldn't hear what was going on unless they hit the talk back. So I'm kind of like literally down in this dark, isolated space recording. And I, we'd finish a take, and then I would hear nothing for like five minutes. Huh. <laughs> you know, So it was really uh, bizarre you know, to, to, to get feedback and to get a vibe for how I was doing. And then, of course, there was you know, the, that whole process. There's a whole other story about how arduous it was and what all we went through to get the tracks and some right. of the, 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 uh, what went down there. But to answer your question, the long way around the barn here, yeah, it was very scary. It was a very, very difficult, very difficult first record. I've never in my career, you know, 20-some-odd years since then, have had such a difficult uh, experience with, uh, you know, recording drums on with anybody on any wow. record. No kidding. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, well, you know, there are, so, there are things that will touch upon later on but there you know there's so many things floating around about Vinny, you know so um i i'm assuming that that probably has something to do with it um was there any input on your end as to how those tracks were going to go or was it strictly you had to go in and nail what was already done on the demo tracks yeah there, there really wasn't uh the only uh, you know, the three songs that Vinny got signed with, uh, which were actually the first three songs on the record in that order, right. Boy's Gonna Rock, Should You Pull Love, No Substitute. Uh, you know, Myron Grombacher from, from Pat Benatar's band played on Boy's Gonna Rock in the on the demo. And, okay. uh, and I don't know if they had, I don't, I don't remember who played on the other two, if they were programmed or whatever. But so there were, there were a couple elements and a couple uh, basic ideas with the grooves and the, the kick and snare patterns and so forth that they wanted to preserve from those three. Uh, but beyond that, and for the rest of the record, I, I had quite a bit of free reign to bring to the table, you know, what, what, what I wanted to bring. And again, there was really no pre-production. It wasn't really figured out in advance. Okay, on this song, you do this groove, on this song, you do that groove. We would just start rolling tape. And I would just play what I thought was was the right kind of groove or what I would normally play. And then, of course, they would stop the tape. No, 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 try this, try that. So I got a tremendous amount of input from, you know, Vinny and Dana throughout. And a lot of it was like, no, we don't like that still. Try another one. Oh, okay. Pretty good. What else you got? So it was just – and that, that's cool. That's part of the process. It's normally the kind of thing you do in pre-production. But right. we just did it all right there as tape was rolling. So, yeah, I felt like I had a – on the one hand, I had a lot of input as to what I would want to do, but on the other hand, uh, I was pretty much completely at the at the mercy of, or at the discretion, I should say, of of Dana and Vinny in terms of, no, don't play a fill there. Yes, play a longer one there. Simplify this. Don't. It was it was that kind of thing. I was kind of like the human drum machine. Which gotcha. listen, that's the way it is. You know, when you're being produced by somebody, that's often uh, the way it is. Okay. How difficult did that make it? Uh, to practice for a live setting, though, if you guys had never jammed together and were just, you were almost writing the parts as you were going along, when you actually got together and started uh, practicing for the tour, did it make it that much harder, or was it really not that big of a deal for you? Well, at, at that point, you know, uh, we had the record as our reference, so I right. had been listening to the, the, I'd heard the record a hundred times, I'd been listening to the track, you know, so that was kind of like our our, our point of reference, and then of course we would we did some variations and and so forth. For uh, it was a little looser for the live thing, but a lot of the you know the, the kick and snare patterns and a lot of the particulars of the drum parts and even some of the signature fills and so forth, I tried to preserve for the uh, for the live thing. Um, one interesting thing to note, though, is that the Vinnie Vincent Invasion's first live performance, where we all actually got on stage together to perform or any kind of a performance setting, was the Boys Are Gonna Rock video. 
That was the okay. first time we had actually <laughs> been on stage all together in any kind of a performance context. Right. So that's something that most people don't know. <laughs> wow, interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, you'd figure that, as you're saying, you know, there would have been some type of a, uh, you know, rehearsal before that even to uh, to get things ready for that video. So, Wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, if, uh, you know, I don't recall uh, us having any pre-production for that, to be honest with you, and if we did, I mean, uh, I don't actually remember, there was definitely nothing talked about who moves where or any kind of uh, anything like that. It was just, you know, jump up on stage and, and play. And the other thing is, is that, you know, Mark Slaughter, his background was as a guitarist lead vocalist. Right. Uh, not not just so so that performance when you see him on a video that was the first time he was ever really to my knowledge performing as a front man. Huh. Uh, you know, okay. without his guitar on. So that's that's another. Of course, you know, he looks fucking great, man. I mean, it was like he, he took to it very naturally. But it was uh, that's that's another interesting point to to note there. Right. Guess he couldn't uh, convince Vinny to uh, allow him to play guitar in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, and it, it wasn't that kind of gig. I mean, it was right. you know, the band was was uh, set up around that power trio vibe with a front man kind of thing, and, and the whole right. dynamic would have shifted had there been another guitarist on there, you know. Uh, so yeah, uh, and it was it was never even. I mean, hell, I don't even know to what extent Vinny knew that Mark played guitar or or uh, was guitarist vocalist. I know he was just presented as here's Mark Slaughter, lead singer guy, you know. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Well, Dana knew. Dana knew the whole story, but anyway. Okay. Uh, in your opinion, why didn't things work out with Robert Fleischman? Well, uh, I think a couple reasons. I, I think from a, you know, Robert was uh, a seasoned veteran even then, you know, you, you know, his background. Uh, he, he had done a lot of stuff and had been around the block and right. knew the business, knew the industry, and, uh you know, smelled the blood in the water, I guess, in terms of how the band was being put together and, and what was being offered, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess from between the, his deal with Vinny and his deal with Chrysalis Records and his deal with our manager and somewhere in that intersection, and I don't, to this day, I don't know the full details about it, but he wasn't happy with what was being offered to him business-wise. And, right. and that's really the bottom line. And um, uh, that's it. And I think I think they kind of hit this insurmountable, you know, impasse where uh, it, it wasn't going any further. And there was, a, there was, I mean, they they tried to salvage it, and there was a whole period of time throughout the recording of the record, and even before we did that first video and and got Mark involved and all that, where they had had different powwows on the phone and all that. But there was there was a lot of history there. There's some other stuff that I wasn't privy to. Okay. And uh, of course, I was painted a certain a particular picture of it from you know. Uh, from Dana and Vinny, who I think were very frustrated about it, but you know, I'm sure you know Robert, as I would learn later, had his very legitimate side of the story there. Right. So that was one issue. The second issue was the fact that you know he, uh, Robert, was just uh, never into all that glam shit. You know, all the makeup and all the hairspray and that whole vibe. I, I, I right. believe, and I could be wrong, but my impression was that I think he saw that as very faddish, you know, very kind of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, fad of the moment, gimmick of the moment kind of thing. Because here in L.A., you know, Poison and, and that whole that, that whole movement was just really picking up steam there. So everybody was kind of jumping on that bandwagon. Right. And I think his feeling was like, man, we're not a bunch of fucking posers. We don't have to, you know, wear that stuff. We, we, we can all play. We, you know, obviously he sang his ass off. I mean, he, he came from that old school, being a real artist, being a real musician thing. And the truth is, we all really could play, man. I mean, I prided myself with my background as a drummer of study and, and being able to do a lot of different kinds of things. And Dana was a real pro. And of course, then he played his ass off. So, you know, I think that was, so I think he always felt uncomfortable with that direction of, you know, wearing, you know, eyeshadow and lip gloss and, uh, you know, pink frilly things and so right. forth. I think he always kind of resisted it, which if you notice on that first DVI cover, he kind of looked like the odd man out there, you know, with what he right. was. Because that, that was about all they could get out of him, you know. He wasn't going to wear all that shit. He was just, you know, so <laughs> so I think there was an inherent uh, disconnect there as well in terms of the direction right. the band was going. But primarily, I think it was about the, the, the business, you know. Right, right, I got you. Yeah, his exact quote to me was that he looked like a dominatrix uh, around a bunch of hookers as far as the uh, back right, right, is right. concerned. 
So yeah, that's um, that's pretty that's pretty accurate. I would have said transvestites, but yeah, hookers will work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were your initial thoughts when Mark Slaughter came into the fold? Well, I loved it. I mean, I, you know, I always liked Robert. You know, I, I got along with him really well, and of course, he's an incredible singer, man. Uh, right. You know, hearing his tracks raw like in the studio I hear play they they play back some of the stuff you know just without any music I mean seriously man I mean the hair on your arms would stand up the guy just sang his balls off so he was a great singer and I really liked him and all that but it, you know he was obviously long gone out of the picture and, and the search had begun so when I met Mark it was really great now he was a young guy like me we got along great he was just really fun to hang out with and had such a light you know spirit about him so I was thrilled with it, you know, and he had a lot of really uh, uh, great natural talent, like his range, his pipes, his ability to hit those the high notes and cop all that shit on the record uh, was very strong. So to me, I only saw it as a plus. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what differences would you say that the two had? You're saying that Mark could nail uh robert's range and everything else as far as just interacting with them uh from what you're telling me you got along with both of them pretty well right yeah and, and at that time well look i i never i never really hung out with robert very much and we literally hung out a few times he came down the studio a few times when we were recording so i never really got to know robert on a personal level uh very well but we were always we always got along and were cordial and, and he was the guy actually at the audition i felt like i connected with uh, the most, and he really went out of his way afterwards to talk and all that. So, um, uh, but as, as far as uh, you know, so and so beyond the the, the personal uh, aspect of it, you know, vocally, I would say the main difference is that uh, I mean, yeah, Mark, you know, could hit a lot of Robert's uh, range, uh, but the, I guess the key difference then was that you know, Robert, don't forget, had quite a few years on Mark as far as experience. So I think, right, especially at that time, his his pipes were just a lot more conditioned uh he, he just had uh that that you know what you have when you do this for so many i mean hell probably what 10 years before that he he was in he did that, that stint with journey I, you know what i mean like he had like a lot of history right even at that point you know it's, it's la studio stuff and doing a lot he did it he had a solo record some years prior so i think he had a little more of that seasoning uh than mark at the time but yet uh, on the flip side you know mark kind of had that young bold, brash, would do anything, try anything, had more of a reckless abandon about his voice and about his whole persona and his whole thing. And, of course, what you get in the front man is more than just the way they sing. You get kind of like this whole package. Right. And I think that usefulness, that whole thing, um, it, it's really apples and oranges. I mean, you can't really compare the two. But in that sense, that was what I think Mark uh, brought to the table, you know? Okay. Gotcha. Um, what differences did you see going into All Systems Go?, as opposed to the first album, uh, when the writing took place, was there more input on your end? Was there less? How did that whole process differ? Yeah, uh, it, it was it was identical. <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, uh, in fact, none, none of, it was just it was always kind of understood that you know this was uh, you know Vanny's gig and Vanny was the writer and you know look at uh, he wrote his ass off. I mean, and he had a certain right. way of doing things, and I think. You know, whenever he would bring tunes to us, uh, I think Dana had a lot of input as a co-producer in terms of arranging and, and manipulating things and tweaking things and all that, that 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 most people probably wouldn't know about. But but again, there's any songs, there's any melodies, his lyrics. I mean, he's a great songwriter. So uh, when it was time to do the second record, I, we just all we all kind of just scattered and and let Vinny go right and then. I think uh, there was a period of time where Vinny would have Mark come over to his house and sing on some of the demos, and they probably had like drum machine stuff going on or whatever, just a demo, you know, and that was how the, the demos were created. And then uh, for that one, we did have a chance to get in and, and uh, rehearse prior to doing the record, which was cool. Okay. Uh, and we recorded drums and bass uh, largely together, as I recall. I think we had like scratch rhythm guitar and maybe... I want to say that maybe uh, Vinny and I, or maybe Dana and I, Dana and I, had recorded together, or uh, something. We, we made a little more effort to try to get kind of a more of a live type of a, of a sound happening uh, on, on, the, on the second record. But as far as the writing and all that, you know, we didn't 
have much input until we got into pre-production. And to be honest, I, mean, I don't remember personally contributing much of anything to the arrangements. It was kind of like I showed up, the songs were there, I'd already heard the demos. Uh, I probably, you know, had some ideas for drum parts and things like that, but it was pretty much uh, Venny's ball game as far as the writing. Okay, gotcha. Um, to set the record straight, why did the invasion disband? Oh, man, you know, uh, <laughs> obviously I've been asked that a few times through the years. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it, there, there really is no easy black and white answer, no matter what anybody tells you. I mean, you could ask any one of us, uh, and each of us are probably going to have our own twist or our own spin on it, you know, as it comes through the filter of our own, you know, recollection of what was going on back then. I think the real truth of the matter is, I mean, this was one of the most dysfunctional situations uh, that I have ever seen, and, and I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily mean that in a in a bad way. I, you know, there were a lot of malicious people or you know, ill-intentioned people involved. It was just, and I don't mean dysfunctional like the cool, you know, VH1 behind the music kind of dysfunction that you see, like on a, you know, with Molly Crew or Aerosmith, where the guys aren't getting along and this and that. Right. I mean, this was fucked up on levels that are hard to really explain now. You know, you, you and and it kind of happened, I think on a lot of different levels as far as, far as you know, we had uh, management was in New York. So they were kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You had okay. Dana kind of running a lot of the show out here on the West coast, but you know, feeling like he had to protect Venny from certain things. And you had the, the label who was kind of disconnected from a lot of the politics of the band. And you had Mark and I who were these young guys who were just kind of along for the ride. And, and so, so there, there was a, a lot of like foundational things that I think were at issue with the band. And um, ultimately, I, I think what our impression was, meaning Dana, Mark, and my own, was that um, there were areas w where we felt like Vinny could have been a liability to his own band, in a sense. And this was based okay. on feedback that we would get and things we would observe and things like that. So. Uh, it, it wasn't that we were all, you know, trying to, you know, kick Vinny out of his own band as it, as, as it was, I think, uh, commonly thought or whatever. It was, it was just a real concern with, you know, how do we handle or manage the guy, you know. Now, in retrospect, I don't know if he really needed, you know, maybe some of that was even exaggerated, you know, like, um, if, you know, I think Dana was really cautious about how Vinny was, uh, would, would, what he would say and who he would say it to and who he was protected from and, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe some of that was exaggerated as I look back. But anyway, the bottom line is I think we had uh, our own concerns about, you know, the, the, the history of the band or the future of the band, I should say, uh, as we proceeded from there. And then, of course, Vinny started catching wind about certain things that were going on about how uh, he started feeling like that it was a mutiny and we were all, we had all kind of, we were betraying him and all, and, and all this shit had, you know, all this went down before we even left for that second tour. Okay. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, so there, so there was a lot of issues where the label was concerned. The label was not interested in doing another record with Vinny, but they wanted to pick up Mark Slaughter's option and do a record with, with something built around him, which of course huh. became Slaughter. Right. So all of these, you know, things were, were moving behind the curtain while we're in rehearsal for the second tour. So the entire second tour went down with all of us kind of knowing on a certain level that this was it. We're just out there promoting a record we had just made, but that it was all, but that it was all heading to nowhere, you know? So that whole record, you know, everything, all the alliances, you know, took hold, you know, Mark and Dana started rooming together and, and they were planning on doing their next record. I wanted to remain neutral throughout the whole thing. Vinny wanted to put a new thing together and do a third record on another leg. I mean, it was like all this, and we were having to play every night together. So it was a very difficult, very uncomfortable time. And I know I'm being, I'm kind of, again, being vague on a lot of the different points here, but it really was that complex. And I think if you talk yeah. to Vinny, he would probably have his own perception uh, about, you know, the way he saw things that would be very different from ours, you know? Right. No, no, I got you. I don't, I don't think you're being vague at all. You, you pretty much, uh, you know, you're giving your side of things. So, um, exactly. and, and I appreciate that. Um, and you just, uh, mentioned the, uh, what is that? The, uh, $50,000 question there. If you talk to Vinny, has anyone spoken to Vinny anytime in the, um, recent past? 
I, I haven't heard of one single human being that has had any contact with Vinny in right. well over a decade. I mean, okay. seriously, man. Right. The motherfucker vanished. It is scary. Uh, and um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, literally, I, I haven't talked to one person who's talked to him. You know, Mark and Dana haven't heard from him or talked to him in years. Last time I talked to him was probably like the early 90s or something, wow. you know. Uh, gone, man. Just MIA. Scary. Wow. Yeah, Robert had mentioned that I guess Vinny had moved to Nashville sometime in the 90s and that he had come right. in contact with him then, but that he hadn't heard from him since. So, similar deal. Right. Right, right. Wow. And that's the last I heard of that he moved to Nashville and that was it, you know. And there, you know, there are so many rumors that uh, circulate uh, around Vinny. I mean, whether uh, there are rumors of him being a, a, a transvestite now or a, or a transgender person or however you want to say that. There's rumors right. of him running a laundromat. Um, Robert confirmed the uh, rumor of him actually pissing on the guitar um, in the studio. Um, what's the yeah. craziest thing that the craziest story that you could tell us involving your time in the invasion? That, that would probably be, that would probably be it. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be it. That, uh, that particular incident there, I, I think, um, well, of course, there are a lot of things that happen on the road, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, what, what happens on the road stays on the road kind of stuff. But that, that, that was right. probably where the real crazy shit went down uh, with, with, you know, with, you know, how, how things were back then with the lady friends and that kind of thing. But, uh, right. but as far as, <laughs> as far as like in studio craziness when I was concerned, yeah, that was, that was pretty uh, hardcore, um, uh, and, and so rock and roll, you know, just so right. fucking rock and roll. It would be so frustrated that your guitar, because what it was is his guitar, he had tuning problems uh, the entire record, you know, and the guy, you know, one of the one of the big creative geniuses behind that model guitar he was using and all that would come down to the studio and he had all these guitar techs and, you know, come in and try, and, and nobody could fix this thing. So he was constantly having to tweak the, the acts. And I, and I believe, it was centered around that, you know, the frustration behind that where he just threw it in the ground and just, you know, pulled his Johnson out and just took a leaf right on it. So that was, uh, and then I remember that the, the, the second engineer had to clean it up. That's what I remember the most. Though, oh, you know? man. Like you, hear, you, you hear these stories, but you never hear about who has to clean up after the story. Right, you know? right, right, right. Absolutely. Wow, yeah. that that blows. Yeah, and he had said that, I guess, you guys couldn't record for a few days because it just stunk so bad. That, that I don't remember. Uh, okay. I, that that I don't recall. But it was uh, it, it was it was pretty. It was it was an epic uh, <laughs> uh, rock and roll story for sure. You know. All these years <laughs> later, if uh, if Vinny were to surface all of a sudden and say that you know I want to I want to get the invasion back together again, would you be willing to do something like that, or is there a lot of things that would have to be straightened out before you even considering that scenario? Well, uh, I mean, I, I guess I would consider it, you know, I mean, I, I'm all, you know, uh, I don't, I, I'm not necessarily one who loves to go back and like revisit like the nostalgia and, and like do all these, all these nostalgia gigs and do this type of thing that's, that's, you know, firmly rooted in the past. At the same time, I don't run from it. I mean, I recognize that all these things that, that I've been through are, you know, part of the collective experience. So, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, hell, I, I, I guess, you know, I, I worked recently again with, with, uh, with Mark and Dana on, on a slaughter tour, you know, and, and okay. doing some of that stuff. And that was a, that was a blast. So, uh, I would, I would entertain it. I mean, I, I'm curious about Vinny himself. He's an interesting character. I would love to talk to him. I would love to play with him again on some level. I mean, the guy is a motherfucker of a player, right. a songwriter. And that's always, you know, beyond whatever kind of personality quirks or whatever, that's always the, the most important thing, or the main thing I remember, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I'd, be, I, I'd check it out. I mean, I don't know who, I don't know, if, if, would anybody really give a shit all these years later? But, uh, you know, beyond that, I would, <laughs> it, would it might be kind of interesting, sure. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think uh, people might give a shit. You know, that, that first album, actually both albums sold pretty well back then. You know, you guys were on that. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack as well got some uh, 
got some uh, airplay from MTV there with pretty much all right, the videos. Right, right. So, you know, I don't think that people wouldn't be interested. I don't think that, you know, you guys could go headline the Staples Center, but, right, you know, right, right. Uh, within reason. I mean, I think, you know, there would be some interest uh, involved. Um, let's see, you just mentioned that you did play with uh, Dana and Mark not too long ago. And um, was it that you wanted to stay neutral that you didn't initially go into slaughter um, and waited all these years later just to do something quick with them? Or was it just that something else was already uh, being offered to you and you weren't going to be able to go and work with those guys again? You know, I think the the way it all went down at the end was so ugly, you know, throughout that tour and, um, and, and, and again, and in the direct aftermath that I, I believe it was important for me at the time to just sort of disconnect from everyone and everything involved with the project. I mean, just from gotcha. my own head, gotcha. I think it was important for me to do that, you know, now in retrospect, it obviously would have made sense for me to stick with Mark and Dana and do slaughter. They had great success, it was, you know, and, uh, we already had already had that history together uh, you know, likewise at the time, I mean, I, I also, uh, you know, hanging around, uh, um, doing Vinny's next record was a consideration for a while there as well, because at the time, I think he was talking with Enigma or some other label and, right. and he, you know, so that, that was, that was something that was talked about as well. But as soon as we all got off the road and then of course the first order of business was, you know, uh, Mark and Dana started looking for, uh, a guitarist for Slaughter and kind of left the chair open, you know, assumed that I would probably do it, um, but, you know, were giving me my space, and so I took a couple of weeks off to reflect and all that afterwards, and I, I just told him, I said, man, I love you guys, but I really have to have to move on here. And there was, I, was moving, I wasn't moving towards anything. There was no other gigs on the table. There was nothing else happening, uh, but I just felt like I needed to have that, that separation of that space uh, gotcha. at the time, you know, so... And that was basically it. And then, you know, of course, I had kept in touch with Mark and Dana through all these years. And uh, and it just so happened that, uh, you know, a few years back, they were doing one of these Rock Never Stops, you know, tours with like Whitesnake and Warrant and, and so forth. Right. And uh, so, and then, you know, the boss uh, couldn't do the gig. So they called me and asked if I wanted to go out for the summer and play, which, I, uh, which the timing was great. So I did, had a ball, and then it ended up doing a handful of other one-off shows throughout the rest of that year or something, you know, so it was a great experience to play with them yeah, in cool. a much healthier context, you know? Right. Cool. Um, well, you didn't make out so bad because ultimately you did, um, you did play with Nitro initially and then you did play with Nelson afterwards and with Nelson, I mean, they were all over TV as well. Uh, I'm assuming that, uh, you did reap some benefits from that as well. No. Yeah, that that was a fun gig. You know, the, the Nitro thing, just for the record, you know, that was, uh, I basically just played the, you know, did the sessions with the guys, just played on the record with the guys. I was never, okay. I never intended to be in the band or was able to commit to being in the band um, at the time. I, I did a photo thing with them also, so for all intents and purposes, it looked like I joined the band. But that, and that was a, a fun record to do. And people still, uh, bring that fucking thing up to me to sign and the actual vinyl <laughs> you know, a lot of times. I mean, it was it really, that, that Nitro record found its audience out there, which was, which was uh, interesting. Uh, and then, you know, with the Nelson thing, uh, yeah, that, that was, that, that was a, a, a very interesting gig to do to say the least. It was, it, it turned out a lot different than what I had initially thought the gig was going to be about in terms of how it was, what the concept was and how it was you know presented to me initially uh, once we got in the thick of things and started doing videos and, and all that, then of course, I think the, the, the marketing and the promotion of the thing went a lot more towards the, you know, 16 magazine tiger beat crowd, you know, cause I think the gotcha. label found that obviously it was more, they, they made it a lot more of a, of a boy band pop type of vibe. Right. Uh, in retrospect, and what I think we all were initially thinking it was going to be, but you know what? Uh, I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything, man. Just to be part of something that, for that moment in time, was that big. You know, we had a number right. one single, and we had a lot of other uh, uh, interesting occurrences on the road, and just to kind of be part of that hysteria uh, is, is really a once in a lifetime thing, man. You know, so uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for anything. 
Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I'm assuming that the uh, residuals in the end were better for Nelson than they were from your gig with Vinny. Uh, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would think. Uh, you know, the thing about residuals and, and royalties and, and that whole uh, type of vibe, I think I, I presume you mean, you mean residuals just as, as in as generally the, the right. long-term benefit or equity or whatever, but you know, all that is commensurate to what a band spends too. So that's true. People yeah. are like, wow, you got you guys sold two million records. Wow, man, you might the, the dough must have just been. And you guys are playing all these sold out, you know, theaters, and then you guys are playing arenas. Wow, man, you know. And it's like, sure, there's there's a fair amount of money coming in, but there was an awful lot of money going out in in that band. And in retrospect, seeing you know like the money that was spent on videos and and. Uh, you know, how we lived on the road, and 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 we had, in fact, we had uh, one of uh, Kiss's old tour buses on our first tour. You know. Okay. Um, so so you know just as a but point being that you know do we really need a TV in every bunk? Do we really do we really need that back then? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I'm glad we had it, but I mean you know one first band, first record, first tour. You know, uh, but of course. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to go. I wouldn't want to change that much of that kind of stuff either. But anyway, it was. Uh, so yeah, and you know, look, that's a whole other story. But it's uh, it's not always what it seems. You know, it's not yeah. always a foregone conclusion that if a band just appears to be highly profitable, that it is. You know, there's a right. lot of stuff behind the scenes, a lot of decisions about how money is spent, and uh, all of these things that uh, are are very different. You know, uh, on the other hand, I think Dane and Mark really learned a lot from the the VVI experience, and they were able to be very frugal and. I think they made some very, very intelligent decisions with how they ran business with slaughter with and how they maximized things. And just from a business perspective, I think they did really well there, you know, with their decisions. Gotcha. Okay. Um, sticking back to the Nitro thing for a second, um, if you were to compare uh, Michelangelo Batio to Vinny, um, you already said it was easier. Well, actually, you said that the uh, uh, Vinny experience was much more difficult. Uh, as far as shredding is concerned, or overall guitar player, who would you take out of the two? Well, really, it, 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 that truly is an apples and oranges kind of scenario. Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Michelangelo is uh, is literally one of the best technicians in the world uh, as, as a guitarist. I mean, uh, you know, through these years, in fact, I just did, a, I did one of his solo records a couple okay. years back as well mm-hmm. since then. Uh, uh, Hands Without Shadows, it's called. Screaming record with a lot of cool stuff on there. And just to be in the room with the guy and watch what he does, I mean, he, you know, he really has all of that uh, remarkable uh, facility on the guitar. And he's just consistently done that year after year after year. So when I think about uh, Michelangelo uh, nowadays, I, I think of how he's playing now, and and, uh, and and all of these years, you know, since then, and how much he's matured as a player, blah blah blah. Right. Uh, having said that, you know, Vinny was also uh, a technician beyond compare as well. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's kind of obvious from hearing those records and all that, but to sit in the room with him and watch what he does, uh, one of the main differences. In terms of technique between the two guys, is you know uh, uh, Michael Badio is has that you know super fast picking right hand picking thing going on, whereas when you watch Vinny's right hand, there doesn't appear to be quite as much happening often because he he used two other fingers on his right hand right. that you could hardly see, but there's almost like a finger picking style. Which I've never seen any rock guy do it this way. You know, like he would do it, but it'd be, so he had his picking finger plus these two other fingers. And between those those three elements, he could that, that's what helped create this this sort of wall of sound, you know, flurry that he'd get. Uh, and of course, his left hand would be all over the place, all over the neck, you know. So, right. so from a technical perspective, uh, he is a frightening motherfucker as well, as far as what <laughs> he's able to do on the guitar and a lot of the really innovative things that he did. I mean, when you go back and listen, uh, don't forget yeah, that shit was a long time ago. Those records. Yeah. You listen to him with fresh ears now, some of the solos, and it's like, what is he doing there? I mean, you know, uh, I remember there was a, a very famous guitar transcriber 
back then who was assigned the task of, of trying to transcribe Vinnie's solos, and the guy would just throw his hands up, I, I heard. You know, like, how am I supposed <laughs> to transcribe this stuff? There's so much happening, you know. Right. So um, both are, very, are remarkable. You know, I'd love to hear, like, Vinnie now. That's the thing. You know, what, what, what would he sound like now, you know, with all right. these years later? Yeah, and, and plus what a lot of people don't know is that you know, he had uh, he was a great blues player. He could play like a you know uh, he could play like funk style guitar stuff. He could make his guitar sound like a clavinet. I mean, he he really uh, I think he had a lot of that finger picking Chet Atkins kind of shit going on. Also, he I mean, right. he really was a a, a, a great musician and a, a accomplished a really accomplished guitarist above and beyond just the, what he did with Invasion. You know. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. I have an old uh, VHS tape where Tim doing an instructional type deal, and he actually explains how he plays like that. How, and I don't remember if it's his middle finger and his ring finger on his right hand that right, he uses. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was exactly, pretty cool. Exactly, yeah. Uh, let's see, last year you did a, a gig with something called Monster Circus, which was more or less a um, all-star lineup doing a bunch of cover so uh, cover songs. I'm sorry. Um, what was right. that experience like? That was a blast. And, you know, that was that, – that, that gig was compliments of Fred Curry from Cinderella. You know, oh, okay. he uh, had, was initially earmarked to do the gig. And then whenever – what it was kind of a concept thing where – they wanted to go to Vegas, as you mentioned, put together an all-star band and, and put together a lot of the, you know, kind of Cirque du Soleil, you know, crazy circus ambience type elements in the context of like an arena rock type show and play a lot of those songs from, with a lot of the guys who were in those bands kind of thing, you know? Right. And that was the basic concept. So they, uh, but it was all about kind of selling it and, and getting the financing together and then doing a big showcase and so forth. So, I was involved at the onset of the project, uh, the initial putting together of the show, the initial rehearsals, and that showcase that actually got it signed. You know, so uh, but it, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, Rudy Sarzo, I'd always been a big fan of through the years. I think we probably played on a few records together, but we're never at the studio at the same time right. <laughs> through the years. You know, so it was great to play with him. And of course, you know, Bruce Kulick, same thing. I think he probably uh, played on a couple of things I played on through the years, but to be able to sit in a room and, and play with him. And of course, John Karabi and uh, Tony Montana from uh, uh, the great white, uh, the early great white days and all that. So it was, a, right. it was a really cool core band. And then, you know, Dee Snyder, of course, came and did uh, a few of the Twisted songs. And uh, so it was a, it was a very uh, professional situation. Uh, everybody got along great. It was, uh, I have a lot of good memories from us, you know, in, the initial rehearsals and then doing that show. The show went really well, and it was, a, uh, it was exciting times. Now, what happened beyond there? What you know, because the show eventually did get picked up, and there's a, there's probably a lot of debate as to why it didn't stick. Uh, but at least in the early stages and the way we did it out of the gate, I think it was uh, it, it showed a lot of promise. You know. Okay. It was interesting, too, because Tony Montana, bass player in Great White, and he was playing guitar uh, during that show, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I remember and seeing... playing well, and, and also singing his ass off, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember seeing yeah. pictures of him playing, I think it was a Telecaster, maybe? I don't remember. Right, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us what Carnival of Souls is all about. Well... That was sort of an, uh, a cool but ill-fated project that uh, I was involved with, I guess, back in 05, 06, something like that. It was a, uh, a New York-based band that uh, was kind of, you know, kind of like a, a combination of the old and the new. You know, so there were certain elements of them were kind of you know, like Maiden or Kiss or Motley, you know, that kind of vibe. But then they had some you know, Godsmack and some other kind of more modern elements. Okay. There, you know, visually they were more, you know, uh, more of a uh, more gothic and more of a, that type of, you know, a lot of you know skull and crossbone kind of a action going on there. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> but they were, at any rate, they were a, a New York-based band, and uh, they they had our boy, uh, uh, who's our boy from Wasp, uh, who's playing drums with them for for a while. But anyway, um, they just, you know, they they their management contacted me mm -hmm. about you know doing the gig and. Uh, and it was all kind of like a, a, a speculative gig in that, you know, there was several things on the table as far as, I mean, they had some pretty good uh, support. 
and uh, they had some decent songs. And uh, when I came on board, it was just to right away do some recording and do some videos with them. And then it was kind of like a wait and see type of a thing. So all I can really say about it is that uh, it just it just never really launched. Now we can go back and speculate as to what could have happened or should have happened or whatever. But the bottom line was just the way the organization was set up that even with all those things in hand, from the videos and the record done and all that, they just weren't able to take it to the next record. And I was pretty far removed from the project because I'm still, you know, I'm a West Coast guy. They're right. on the East Coast. And I would just, you know, get the, the calls and the emails on occasion about, well, this is possible or that's possible. And then weeks became months and months turned into a year or two years and it just kind of rolled off into the sunset. And that's really the last I've heard of it. Gotcha. Okay. And the drummer from Wasp, if I'm not mistaken, was Thet Howland or something like that was his name? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he had been with them initially. Okay. Right. And for whatever reason, things didn't work out, and that's when they uh, they buzzed me to come in and uh, you know record the record and do the do all the do the video stuff and all that. You know. Gotcha. Okay. What are you up to currently, music-wise? Well, uh, you know, after all the, the the Nelson stuff and all that, I mean, through a lot of the '90s, I really had pursued a, uh, a solo direction. I did three records as a solo artist doing kind of like instrumental rock stuff and very drum heavy and did a lot of that stuff into uh, the 2000s, you know, and, and, um, and then I, you know, I started playing with Gary Hoey and doing a lot of other things of these last several years. But the, but now here recently this year, I think I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm ready for another one now. So okay. the newest thing I'm doing is a, I, I've written a book and I'm about to record essentially a soundtrack for the book is what okay. it is, but it's really my fourth solo record. So it's kind of like uh, power trio format as I normally play in, a lot of crazy drumming, mm -hmm. but this time with full orchestration involved. So it'll be kind okay. of, a, of a different direction, have a lot of the same elements that I like to do, the hard-hitting drum stuff, you know, a lot of solo shit going on, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but with... Uh, Kind of the next level, uh, or, or I should say, just a different, different, a slightly different direction with a lot of the, the orchestration on that. So that's a lot of what I'm involved with. I'm just uh, the, the book is done. We're just doing final editing on that now, and I'm just stepping into pre-production for the record. So throughout okay. this year, I'll have a few things related to this project. You know, and all, all that's going to be, with, you know, on my, at BobbyRock.com. I'll be having all the announcements and, and keeping everybody posted as to when everything's going to be released. You know. Okay. Cool. And do you have a title for the book? Yeah, it's called Zentaria. Okay. All right, Zentaria. So that that'll be, that's the name of the book, and then the that's the name of the record. You know, Zentaria, the original soundtrack. And there's a, a third multimedia product that we're putting together for it. So it'll be it's kind of like this whole like, kind of like a concept album, I guess you could say. You know. Gotcha. Okay. And this so, isn't your first yeah. book, right? No, no, it isn't. I think it's my seventh. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, the other thing that I did want to talk about was what you do outside of music. Obviously, you've always been in great shape, and all the uh, pictures that have come out over the years, you've obviously maintained uh, your physique. And I noticed um, on your website, you have a bunch of different uh, sections for not only fitness, but um, things geared towards nutrition, exercise, and meditation. Um, obviously right. you've maintained your love of all those things over the years. How does, how do you approach that as opposed to how you approach music, for example? You know, I, 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 I see very little separation between any of these things. I mean, I realize they're kind of different subjects. Like one is drums and music and the other one is health and fitness and the other one is, you know, veganism and animal activism, and, you know, it, it, you know, there's all these different categories, but to me, it's all, it, they're, they're all interrelated, and particularly, like, you got to remember, like, a lot of the, you know, the, the weightlifting came about because of the drumming, because I was right. looking for a way to, you know, be able to hit harder and, uh, you know, faster for longer periods of time, so I wanted to integrate more of traditional, you know, like, like how a fighter might train, you, you, right. you, know, you lift weights, you do, you know, so, uh, and then the nutrition thing came about as a result of, you know, how to, how to fuel the body in terms of your overall energy level for like being on tour and all that, because I go out on the road and start getting burned out from all the fatigue and all that, so all of these things kind of are, are, are an offshoot of, 
of, of the art form, I guess you might say. You know, so I okay. I, I realize there's, there's separate topics, but to me, it's, it's I kind of approach them all as part of one, you know, part of the 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 same line of expression, you might say. Now, having said that, look, there's been a, I've devoted a tremendous amount of uh, time and energy into the study and the, the, and writing and all of that. Um, through the years, I've kind of been able to put together my own philosophy on health and fitness and how you know nutrition interacts with exercise and what role you know the the, the mind body connection plays in the whole bigger picture of the whole thing and so forth. So I've put together a whole methodology that involves all of these uh, ideas. And so that, that's a lot of what I talk about on the website. And in fact, I have another book that uh, I'm just finishing up now as well that deals with the this, this whole topic also, you know. Okay. So, okay. yeah, so a lot of writing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to that, drumming and writing seem to be the, the, the two main things through these years, you know. Okay, cool. Do you uh, ever intend on writing anything that... Um you know, has nothing to do with either fitness or uh, music? Do you intend on maybe doing some type of fiction or some historical type writing, or are you more or less centered on what you've done so far? Yeah, there, there, are, there are some things. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book called Hypothetical Erotica okay. back in the late 90s that is sort of like a series of these hypothetical, you know, uh, uh, yet provocative scenarios, each with some kind of a sexual undertone that okay. are meant to provoke, you know, conversation. They they present some sort of an ethical dilemma based on some sort of a, you know, typically sexually oriented uh, situation. And then the reader or the, the group or whoever's participating would say, like, what they would do if they were in that situation kind of like. And it's, that was meant to be more of a sort of a philosophical, ethical type, whatever, kind of this off-the-wall thing. In fact, I was doing these hypotheticals years and years ago, probably even back in the VVI days, where okay. I would propose a scenario, and the people would say, oh, yeah, well, here's what I would do, or whatever, you know. Gotcha. So they eventually became a book in the late 90s. That was one thing there. And, yeah, I think with this new book I just did, it, it's a little broader. There's more, again, it's more philosophical kind of stuff going on in there, Um and sure, I, I I like doing all kinds of writing, so I would I would think that in the that uh, uh, and of course some of the the drum books I've written, you know, the, the method books and all that have been uh, are, you know more music based. So yeah, I've done a pretty mixed bag now, and I'll, I'll probably continue to to widen that as we go, you know. Okay, cool. So the best place for people to find out about you would be BobbyRock.com. Yeah, that would be that's the best bet. I mean, there are a lot of different links there. There's a blog that has a lot of interesting shit on there. I do a lot of stuff in animal advocacy, and a lot of the experiences and philosophies and all that are talked about there, as well as on another website that's promoted on BobbyRock.com. And then there's Rock Solid Fitness, which is at BobbyRock. Everything when you go to BobbyRock.com, you'll find all the other related links to pretty much everything else under the sun. You know. Hey everybody, this is Bobby Rock coming at you live from L.A. and you are listening to Mars Attacks.
There you go. A little twisted by Vinnie Vincent Invasion with Bobby Rock on the drums. Want to thank Bobby for coming on board. Also want to thank his assistant Tony for helping set everything up. Uh, hopefully one of these days we will have a Vinnie Vincent special on the Mark Striegel radio uh, stream. We've been talking about it for a while, trying to secure different guests and everything. Bobby was one of them. I did have Robert Fleshman a few months back on the show as well. Uh, I may release that at some point as a Mars Attacks podcast, but in the meantime, you can actually check out episode 294 of Talking Metal, which does include that specific interview. And um, I also want to remind you that I'm a frequent contributor to the Talking Metal Wire. Uh, Unfortunately, due to my personal life, I haven't been updating things as much as I'd like to there. Uh, Also, a freelance writer for Metal Army America. Check that site out. Definitely a lot of cool stuff happening there on a daily basis. Uh, You can find reviews or interviews that I've conducted on there. Uh, If not, you could also just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com and you'll find links to all the various reviews and interviews and things that I've done for Metal Army America. Also remind you about the Mars Attacks radio show. Once again, Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Just go to the website and find out all the repeat times. The easiest thing. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and MySpace directly from the Mars Attacks radio.com also you'll find links to my Spanish language podcast which also plays on Mark Striegel Radio on a nightly basis uh, that uh, what we're doing well actually I should say this there, there's a radio show and there's a podcast for that as well the radio show is basically just music that's on Mark Striegel Radio and on Wild Child Radio uh, that's wildchildradio.tk You'll find those episodes on Wednesdays. It's uh, 7 p.m. here in Spain, so that's uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, three hours earlier, so that's 10 a.m. Pacific. If you're interested, that's wildchildradio.tk. For that, if not, late nights on Mark Striegel Radio, you'll hear that very same, the, the very same episode that I upload to their stream. And finally, the, Mar- uh, the I'm sorry, Fusion Sonica podcast. Uh, recently, what I've been doing is similar to this podcast, just focusing that on interviews that I've been doing. And, uh, you know, I may switch back and forth doing uh, the odd music episode here and there, but I'm going to sort of keep it as interview-based as possible. In any event, I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and supporting it and making it the success that it's been so far. I also want to thank um, everyone that uh, goes to the website and leaves their comments there. Keep sending your comments in. Also, you can send me an email at victor at marsattacksradio.com. And that's pretty much it. So long for this week. Leave you with a little more Vinnie Vincent's Invasion. Of course, in the background, you'll hear Boys Are Gonna Rock. What would be complete talking about Vinny and focusing on the, you know, Invasion years and not playing this song? Probably the most known song, the song that gets played the most out of anything that was put out with those first two Invasion albums. Anyway, thanks again for listening. See you next time.